0: He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about to explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud?
1: Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I'll once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munson's. Want to give them a wide berth. What is called a born loser. A real Munson. (laughs) And talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. Rigby didn't make it this time. His work life has kidnapped him. We sent in some press releases to local media in uh, Riverside,
2: California to see if we could track them down. There's a bolo alert for uh, a guy on the corner talking excessively about Oscar and uh, Academy Award winning films. So we'll, we'll find him sooner or later.
0: Every action movie from the 70s and 80s. James. Yeah, I haven't seen you guys in a while. I'm excited to be here. Excited to cover Kristoff. Uh, Last time I saw you, I still... Uh, owned a house but we have officially sold it and so i'm currently recording from our temporary apartment it's about 25 degrees outside and so uh i'm braving the elements to to talk about our
1: man here it is chilly here in indianapolis and it went from zero to 100 so fast or 100 to zero to be more clear snow ice it's gross
0: i just can't wait the baby by uh, talking about movies inside, and so I'm, I've reserved myself to this tiny little screened-in porch.
2: Hey, as you guys know, I'm incredibly out of touch, and I recently asked some people that were taking a selfie if they wanted me to take the picture for them. And they're like, no, we'd rather do a selfie. This is such a stupid word. Like, I, I just refused to get on board with selfie. And then it dawned on me a couple hours later that the word movie is the exact same thing. It's moving pictures was shortened to be movie. Oh, that's... Fact, when motion pictures were out like, "Hey, that's a movie," so we are Munson's at the motion pictures from now on because I refuse to buy into this teenage jargon.
0: It's not teenage, man.
2: I don't think it rolls.
1: <laughs> I think you just need to get on board. Go suck on your Werther's candy and. <laughs>
3: Worthers are good. Yes, thank you. We, we just witnessed the conception of like Gran Torino sequel. Like, is that actually <laughs> what's going to happen? <laughs> Aubrey, to my point
1: earlier, I'm going to guess there's a 90 percent chance that your grandmother got you into Worthers, and that proves my point. Yeah, that's a fact. Well, speaking of Aubrey, episode number two as a regular. How are we feeling?
4: I made it. You guys kept me for a whole another week. I'm good, man. It's I'm out here teaching kids how to read coaching basketball and living all the dreams, I guess, right?
2: Do you have any Ivan Drago quote blowbacks from last week?
4: No. (laughs) I said to him the other day, I was like, yo, you need to start saying, like, if he dies, he dies. I need you to say that. He won't do it. No, he shouldn't. Also, that kid scored 35 tonight. Oh! (laughs) Yeah. He's also really good.
1: Eddie's crossing some kid up. I must break you. Oh my, I would lose it.
4: I could probably talk him into it.
1: On my end, so one, for our listeners, we're we're moving to a three-week cadence instead of a two-week cadence. A little bit more time on our end to watch things and prep. Also, our lives are just chaos. So wanting to maintain, but also not just exhaust the crap out of us as a team. So FYI, if you're listening, that's why an episode is not hitting on the 17th. But the update, the real update for you, Case, is on the way home from the conference tonight, I was in the car. The first song that came on the shuffle was from the epic, amazing group called Turquoise Jeep. Yep. None other than than our boys Young Hama, Flint Flossie, whatchamacallit, and Slick Mahoney. And the song was Treat Me Like a Pirate. (laughs) If you know Case and I's friendship, then you know he and I have had a legendary night out in the backyard of his house. Watching music videos and stumbling into every music video ever made by turquoise jeep and if you are listening and you don't know who they are, I need you to go to YouTube yep and type in treat me like a pirate,
2: and then enjoy your YouTube hole. That video caught me so off guard and had me laughing so hard. I picked up a patio chair and I threw it fifty feet across my backyard. I was laughing so hard um we're excited to bring back Mark Yerkey to the pod. Mark
1: is joining us not from Ohio, not Iowa but Idaho, the rugged mountainous state out west that you definitely should not consider moving to. He's a man of strong opinions, partially made of Buffalo Wild Wings, sexy garbage, and has a preference for even stronger beer. He's once again stepping into the ring with his favorite group of film fanatics to not only dissect our next featured artist, but stress how surprisingly great the movie Bumblebee is. We love that returning, that's great. Uh, Between his new job at Boise State University and a 10-month-old daughter, He's excited to get in some more months in time. He was previously with us for the Chris Tucker, Emily Blunt, and Angela Bassett episodes. Quite the spread. Welcome back, Yerky. How are you doing, man? And uh, tell us a little
3: bit more about the life. Thanks for having me back. Just been living that campus life, working at Boise State. It's been fun. Been on the blue several times. So if you don't like that field, you can suck it. i did try to i tried to take my friend to go on the blue turf last week i walked in i'd put my name badge on and this young man at the counter was like no it's closed today and i was like oh okay can i just have a second he's like no everybody thinks they're special <laughs> valid that's a great response <laughs> It was a pretty brutal cut down i know right like i didn't really that's phenomenal i didn't want to go like full <laughs> karen on him but also it was like man dude i don't know that we needed to do that like <laughs> i was fine with just that we're closed today
1: hey well you made us laugh already and that's why we love having you here man so we're excited yeah, dude. let's do this glad you're back buddy thank you november 24th birthdays in rigby stead first off we have billy Connolly. Known for films such as Boondock Saints and the sequel. Last Samurai, one of my personal favorite movies. I enjoy him in that film. I know that's controversial, but I love that movie. Brave and Gulliver's Travels. How old is Billy Connolly? Who is he in Boondock Saints? The assassin who ends up being their father. Spoiler alert. Oh,
0: spoiler alert. The movie <laughs> is not as good as you thought it was when you were in eighth grade. Yeah, tell Uh, all your high school friends, James. It's fucking brutally bad. I thought it was so cool back then. I don't even know who this is. He's got to be old as shit, because he was old in that movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: what is it, like 82? Yeah, that's a pretty good guess.
4: Yeah. I was terrified you were going to call on me first. I was like, my students in my class. like, please don't do this today.
2: (laughs) I'm going to say that Billy Connolly is 75. It's the hair. It's just the glorious locks.
0: I'll take 77. I'll go 72.
1: All right. Billy Connolly is turning 80, so Aubrey gets the win there.
3: Yeah. Oh. So,
1: Yerky was close. He is almost nailed it. <laughs> almost nailed it. Second up, Katherine Heigl. She's best known for movies like Knocked Up, 27 Dresses, lots of romantic comedies, Grey's Anatomy, had a long run on that show, and The Nut Job too. Nutty by Nature. Mm. Yes, I said Nutty by Nature.
0: That's how I know her. <laughs> <laughs> 43
1: notorious for being kind of an asshole on set. And I think it killed her career for 46, 41, 45. Catherine Heigl is turning 44. So I believe James said 43. So I think James wins that one.
0: Yeah. Let's say I said that
1: that feels good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think I said something like that.
1: Final one. We've got Colin Hanks, famous dad, Thomas, Oh, Uh, Thomas Hanks, not Chet Hanks, but Colin Hanks known for King Kong, Orange County, Untraceable, lots of TV, and the House Bunny. How old is Colin
3: Hanks? He was in, like, a band Royal Blood's music video. Oh, I like Royal Blood. Great band, if you haven't checked them out. Yeah,
1: I like Royal Blood.
3: I'm just going to say 51. Just kick it off.
0: I have no fucking idea.
3: 45. I know Chet was in uh, Atlanta,
0: and he was hilarious in that episode. And Colin is the non-racist one. Probably a little older. Those
4: two things don't usually go together.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No.
1: He just looks older. Chet looks younger.
0: 40. He's 47.
1: Ace on the dot. Colin Hanks is turning 45. Love it. Three different victories this time. Aubrey, better better luck next year, as they say, and happy Gilmore. (laughs) Happy birthday to them and everybody else. This is episode 75. I think this is kind of a big checkmark oh, nice. in the Munson's world. We're almost to that century mark, so we're, we're making moves here. And so, on episode 75, the five actors that were tossed onto the wheel from our megalist were Gary Sinise, Ava Green, Timothy Oliphant, Joel Edgerton, but it doesn't matter, because the wheel selected Christoph Waltz. But uh, Christoph has 126 credits on his resume. Uh, a lot of these are German and Austrian projects, which we'll talk about. And 2009 is kind of the, the dividing line between doing a lot of international work, and then getting onto the American film scene. What we're here to do is kind of talk about the full journey of his career. But before we do that, we always start with a little actor trivia to see if James can stump us Fast and Furious style. So everyone here is a veteran to the
0: game, but for new listeners, I'm going to read off three facts. Two of them are going to be true about Christoph Waltz, and one of them is going to be true about one of the many actors from the Fast and Furious franchise. The guys are going to have to guess which one is not true about Christoph. Fact number one had his hair accidentally set on fire during an explosion stunt scene while on set and didn't delay the filming while sustaining minor injuries. Fact number two, his grandfather was a student of Sigmund Freud who became a psychiatrist famous for his book, Sex Perfection and Marital Happiness. Fact number three, is only one of seven actors who have ever won an Academy Award every time they were nominated.
2: Well, I know Fact 3 ain't Luda, so I'm going <laughs> to bow out of that one. Yeah, he's won
1: both times, but there could be more than seven, less than seven, so the numbers might be where James is tricking us
2: up. So I'm not convinced that one's not true. I think the lie is uh, number one, and that's about Kurt Russell. Here's what was nuts to me. Despite having such a crazy career and the two of them running in similar circles, they have not been in any movies together. The only IMDb credit they have is the QT8 documentary about Quentin Tarantino. Those two need to get together and make a movie soon. So my guess is number one, Kurt Russell. Hair started on fire. Every time I see a video of him,
0: it's like him chilling in his beautiful backyard. Like, I think he's just yes. calling it a career, you know? Like, I think he's doing fine.
1: I'm going to follow case. I think fact one is also the lie, and that could be any number of that who that since that day have just decided to stay bald. So Vin Diesel, Tyrese Gibson, Jason Statham to a certain extent, Noel Gugliemi. who else? I'm, I'm on Google here. Who else is bald? Ted Levine to a certain extent. He's got the chops on the side, but that's that's clear cut up top. So I think any one of them
3: would qualify for fact one.
2: Well, you are casting a wide net with your guests. <laughs> you got a
4: lot of opportunities to be right.
3: Uh, yeah, I think it's the origin story of Vin Diesel's hairstyle. <laughs> that number one is the lie and that he actually had his hair burned off and cannot grow it back.
4: We all want to believe it. Well, for playing a game, I'm going to go with number two then, because no one has guessed that. I have no actual guess as to who it could be, so I'm going to choose MC Jin or Jin the MC, who was in Too Fast Too Furious.
0: I remember Jin. So I'm going with. Did he do battle rap? I'm pretty sure he did. He was a battle rapper. <laughs>
1: yeah, I didn't know he was, was battle in Fast rapper.
0: I would have brought out more Jin facts. <laughs> he was, I was not aware.
4: He was, <laughs> he's in the second one, and I remember seeing it and got real. Next hyped.
1: week, baby, we're getting some <laughs> MC Jin.
0: <laughs> okay so the only one no one brought up was fact number three is only one of seven actors who have ever won an academy award every time they were nominated and that's true he's two and zero, obviously for django and inglorious bastards the others are louise rayner i don't know her vivian lay from gone with the wind helen hayes Kevin spacey who i think's been recently proven innocent but i'm still gonna side on the side of caution here and say he's probably a dirtbag hillary swank and then former Munson alum, uh, Mahershala Ali, the only ones who have ever won every time. Prince Ali? Yeah. Other than that, it, it was fascinating to see the people who have like been nominated so many times and have only won once, or people like Glenn Close and Amy Adams, who've been nominated like eight, and seven times and haven't won a single time. Like I don't understand why that's still a thing. They definitely deserve them. Fact number two, his grandfather was a student of Sigmund Freud, who uh, became a psychiatrist famous for his book, Sex, Perfection, and Marital Happiness is True. So his granddad, Rudolf von Urban, published his famous book with its famous Six Rules to Perfect Sex, which would eventually become a precursor for uh, famous tantric sex. I could go through the six rules, but I don't think that's necessary because they seem impossible to me. But uh, what I did find fascinating was his granddad was married, and him and his wife named their kids Hansel and Gretel. And I just don't feel like, you know, like that's like a respectable thing to do in Germany. You know, like I I feel like you should be mocked for that. I guess when you write a famous book, everyone kind of let it go. And fact number one had his hair accidentally set on fire during an explosion stunt scene. You guys were close. I didn't think the bald thing would be something you guys would get. But while filming the transporter, one of the falling embers of a house explosion hit Jason Statham, famous for playing Deckard Shaw in the Fast and Furious franchise, doing his own stunts and being bald. The embers set what he jokingly calls the last remains of his hair on fire. That wasn't Waltz. But while training for Django, he was thrown from a horse and dislocated his pelvis. And that didn't delay filming. Oh. Yeah, Tarantino realized that he, he didn't have to change any of the dialogue and could just change the story so that he doesn't ride the horse. He, he's in a wagon and the horse pulls him. And so the training was for nothing. <laughs> Holy shit, that would hurt. Almost delayed the filming, but because he was the perfect cast, they were like, we're not, we're not doing that. I mean, I wrote this character specifically for him, so we'll take as long as it takes.
2: Thanks, <laughs> Dave. Yep. Yeah, dude, that are a great... <laughs> Those are really good. All right, Case, what do we got for a snapshot in box office? Vault's box office snapshot is really incomplete because of the decades of work done internationally. The bulk of the box office work I've been able to find isn't until, like you said earlier, 2009. Despite having a limited snapshot, the dude has some gigantic numbers, though. For starters, his average budget for movies is $84.6 million. Which ranks him fourth. Another impressive number is that his films aggregate world gross ranks him 23 at 4.3 billion. Again, super impressive since we're missing decades of his work. The overall numbers we compare to other actors are as follows. He's 47th on Star meter at 1473, 31st in critic ranking at 59.8, which I thought was a lot lower than, than it was going to be. He's twentieth in fan ranking at sixty two point nine percent, fifty third and seventy second in box office metrics, mainly because his box office budgets are so massive. And you put all those numbers together, you come out with a thirty three. It's not
1: shocking given how much data is probably missing from his early acting days. Yeah,
4: that feels that feels about right.
0: And there is also like roles where I felt like he performed well in movies that. Sucked. Yeah, like, like. Oh, he's pretty good. I'll never watch this movie again.
3: Mm -hmm. we all feel the same way about Django.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I loved. It's my favorite Tarantino movie by far.
1: Sounds like I have good company for the inevitable conversation (laughs) we're going to have here in a little bit. Part two. We're going to have a Django fight. Oh, the Django versus Inglorious Bastard. So prepare yourself.
2: Those two movies are by far and away his best performing movies. Django and Chain. Against a $100 million dollar budget, pulled in $326 million worldwide. And inglorious Bastards, against a $70 million dollar budget, pulled in a $251 million dollar profit.
1: Damn good. Buy a lot of Hyundai Elantras with that. In the words of James Cromwell from Babe, that'll do, pig. That'll do. <laughs> Before we get into first major role, which is going to be 1981, we're going to talk about kind of the early days, and as we alluded to a little bit with Christoph. There's a lot in there, but not a lot that is either available to us or is in the English language, and I don't think any of us have an aggressively expansive knowledge of the German language, unless Yerky is an enthusiast, and I just don't know.
4: However, I was born in Germany.
1: Well, there you go. That's more than we could say for anybody else here. That's like... Wait, what? That's
0: awesome.
4: Yeah, born in Germany, military parents, had a shot at German citizenship, passed that up because I was stupid. No <laughs> root for Germany in the World Cup, though.
1: So. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> fair. That makes sense. You got your priorities straight. Before the first major role, the early days of christoph he was born in '56 in Vienna, um, of Austrian slash German parents. So where he does most of his early acting work is where his parents come from. His family actually has a history in silent film. Given he's born in the the '50s, and his grandparents and folks in the '30s and '20s. Part of the, the silent film. Is that Hansel or Gretel that was in the silence films? I think Hansel because women, I don't think, were allowed to do
2: much back then in those <laughs> fair. days. Fair. Completely fair. Yeah. Especially in Germany, probably not. Silent films then became movies with sound. And what were those movies referred to at the time? Oh, they were called Takis. Thank you very much. Prove your point of education for everybody tonight. How much of a curmudgeon you are, continuing on that theme? <laughs> Um, I miss the talkies. (laughs) Movies were way better before the talkies. So I'm with Christoph's family here. You look great for being 110. Congratulations.
1: (laughs) (laughs) His father actually passed away at seven, which that's tough on any young kid for him early on. The thing I did know learning about Christoph, his early days, I did not know he started in the opera. He was inspired by opera at age 10. uh, And he would perform twice a week when he was a teenager. So. His first love wasn't acting, it was actually on the opera side, And but he, he studied acting at the Max Reinhardt Seminar and opera at the University of Music and Performing Arts in Vienna, but my understanding is that he got to a certain point with opera where he just realized, like, I don't think my voice is good enough to go into this world, and I'm going to stick to acting.
0: It's not one of those skills that you can train yourself to get to the level to go, like, pro at, you know, where it's like, I can work out every day of my life, and I'm not going to make the nba it's very similar with opera where you could be a good singer and then you get there and you're like never mind i'm
2: not i'm not that level. I, i'll just do something else yeah i'll just do something else yeah, yeah you know different art when i hear that some of his performances make more sense opera stars right when when they're in their solo, or whatever the hell they're doing i don't know what it's called but they are demanding the attention of the audience and in so many of his roles and we'll talk about later he just demands your attention as the viewer make sense? So he studied acting in the 70s under Lee Strasberg, Stella
1: Adler, some big names in the the training community. He came overseas to study acting. Then he returned back to Europe to do stage acting in Vienna, Salzburg, Cologne, Hamburg. So his, his acting career really started to pick up in Europe doing theater work. So taking some of the, the opera side and then bringing it to the theater, theater side of things. According to his IMDb, his first movie called Der Einstein played Gunther in 1977. There's a song from the soundtrack that's popular. I think it's Du No, I don't think it is. Du <laughs> Duhas. Du Haas. The case is a regular comedian. But between 77, that first TV, that first movie, and 2004, which is before he gets hits the American scene and gets famous, he does a lot of projects, including 44 TV movies. So grinding it out on the television and TV movie circuit overseas, but as I read in interviews, not a time that he looks upon super fondly. He, you know, a lot of ups and downs, more downs than up, based on what I saw. I heard him say
4: in a podcast somebody re- referenced his early work, and he was he said there was he was ignorant to it, and he was like basically just alluded to that being like a good ignorance
1: what we'll do we'll try to mark some of the biggies between 77 and 2004 and so the the first thing i noted here
2: he was 1989 he's involved with a tv movie called goldeneye which is a fact-based biography of james bond author ian fleming i mean way to skip ahead 12 years you know you could you could have held on to that (laughs) it fits into your your 44 tv movies in 1989 that makes sense one of many So
1: some of the other pieces here, we've got Parole Chicago. He did 13 episodes of that. I don't know how big Parole Chicago was. All I know is there's a hilarious fan video that someone made about this show from 1979 of all the Christoph Waltz scenes and funny faces. So something tells me it was kind of big at the time. If somebody decided to make a fan video about a show from 1979. (laughs) But I'm just drawing inferences here. It's impressive. And then between 79 and 2008, 21 TV series appearances. So to the point, very, very busy. And during that time, part of what kept him busy was his first major role in 1981's Tristan and
3: Isolde*, which the movies actually called fire and, uh, what was it fire and sword? That's actually, so that was an interesting piece, but it's a, uh, based on the like Arthurian legend, Tristan and Isolde*. Came out in 1981. Couldn't tell. Expected it to be German, but it was mostly English with some like weird German dubs. I'm convinced that like 42% of the cast were probably English speaking. Only an hour 20. It was a short one. Kept thinking about The Green Knight, like the most recent one, right? And all of those like Arthurian, like legend portrayal. And it was like really pensive and trying to take these artistic shots and would kind of leave these like. Lingering, you know, prose statements within shots of folks like, you know, hobbling around this like depressing gray countryside, I guess. And the movie had a lot of that, but also I was watching it in like maybe 2040p on YouTube. Yeah, it's not great. It was hard to discern like beautiful sweeping landscape with like counting the 16 pixels that were spread out across my 65 inch television. (laughs) I thought the music was pretty ripping, to be honest. Like, there's a lot of this like kind of weird 80s synth, but maybe it was like a clav, kind of like organ work. <laughs> and it's like right as the movie started, it just, it just came jamming in. And and again, pretty good, pretty intense. Not what I expected <laughs> for this like Arthurian legend. Christoph Waltz was the one of the worst parts of this movie, honestly. I don't think he did a very good job. He was like hands down the most attractive thing in this film like i could envision him being cast as like the the future heartthrob of the fatherland i don't think he was very good in it. <laughs> yeah i don't know what else, like
2: he was just like boy this guy's handsome but god when he opens his mouth like Ugh. was his acting style like too derivative of like television style acting or like what threw you off about his performance again like arthurian prose with
3: just this pretty boy saying things. I just don't know that it landed with this like gravitas that I would expect, especially having seen his more recent work and being like, "Oh man, like this guy can really bring it and and provide this level of presence that I think is really unparalleled in a lot of ways." And then to see him just kind of be this like, I don't know, it's almost like he had to get like less attractive in order to be better at what he was doing. And at that time, it's like that's what he was going all in on. He's like, "Well, I just got shoved out of the opera community because i'm not talented enough i guess it's time to go all in on my looks and it's like nah man that's not what you need to go all in on
4: (laughs) it's it's oddly void of charisma Mm -hmm. yeah it's not a very charismatic performance which may be down to what i would call bizarre editing interesting Like like things just stop happening.
3: Are you
1: saying everybody was devoid of charisma or just him? I'd say everybody is in general, but he
4: stands out the most to me because he is someone I attach with charisma.
1: Most of the early stuff i watched with him, I was so unimpressed with his screen presence. And I think it's because he sets the bar so high with his uh, Oscar winning roles. So you watch the the early stuff and you're like, I don't know how he got that big. And uh, clearly he figured some things out along the way. So this was life-changing for you. That's what I'm hearing.
3: Yeah, I really wish. I'm trying to track down the 4K version.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm waiting for, too. I feel like if the refresh rate just would have been a bit better. It's hard to get into something like that when the the quality is so poor.
4: I can't wait for the person who's listening to this that really likes the Green Knight and is like, oh, this is like the Green Knight and goes back (laughs) to watch
3: this. I fucking love the Green Knight, and I promise you that, like, (laughs) this ain't it.
1: I I'm, I'm just glad we were able to find a version of his 1981 performance in Fire and Stone or Slash Tristan Desolda.
3: Well, then I was reading the comments. Then I was reading all, the co- all 16 of them on the YouTube <laughs> video cuz right cuz someone else was like, you know, again, I'm like jamming. I'm like this soundtrack is ripping. Like again, it's it might be 80s synth. <laughs> But then someone's, like, saying that it's not the soundtrack and that it's not the original music, and I'm like, wait a second. Like, am I not experiencing the true fire and sword that I was meant to? Oh. And if I think this music's good, then, like, what's the actual music sound like?
1: Yeah, Philip T. says this is a re-release version. Original score is different and way better. Yeah,
3: that's what they said. I trust Philip T. Way better? But then, like, I don't know. Like, maybe these are, like, Russian bots trying to sow, you know, this, (laughs) this You know, disrupt our de- democratic values. and I don't know what to believe.
1: We need the original Tristan Isolde fired stuff. Maybe
3: Stone. this is what will take me back to the theaters. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. A midnight, a midnight showing it. of Tristan Solda. I thought he kind of sucked in it, but that was just me. You know, it's an important watch for
1: Christoph Waltz fans. All these people that are big, like Tarantino fanboys, like, go watch Fire and Sword from 1981. Right? Really do the research. His
3: death scream? none of you made see, none, of, none of you made it to the ah! end. did you watch
1: that part <laughs>
4: i didn't make it to that
3: no i just had to imagine that's what it's like it was it was just it was uneven i think that's okay. the best <laughs> okay
1: all right we're tracking here we're tracking the the progression and growth all right so we got a long time until the next review so we're going all the way to 09 so we're going to track everything else leading up to inglorious bastards a couple things his, his marriages and, like, family life is, uh, like, you can find on Wikipedia, but finding dates tied to it is really hard, I've noticed, with his life. So, what I did find, and James can correct me if he knows the years, but his first marriage was in the 80s, I believe, to Jacqueline New Rock. She was a dance therapist from New York, and they were together for 17 years and had three kids together. Pretty substantial relationship, I would say. Mm-hmm. I would attest to that. So he got divorced at one point, and he got he married a German costume designer named Judith Holst, and they have a daughter together. So he had four four children with his first two wives. A gaggle, some would say. But I don't have the dates, so I can't give you specifics, but I think that probably filled his life in the 80s and 90s. The next notable project is a, a film that's also on YouTube. It's called The Mysterious Stranger. It's a PBS film from 1982. He plays Ernst Wasserman, and it's it's kind of a fun little... 80 90 minute movie about uh, time travel and this trickster who comes from the future and is messing with people during like the writing of the Bible it's kind of interesting I didn't hate it I liked it better than Tristan Inisolda slash fire and sword I, I at least finished this one I did not finish sword I tried sorry couldn't do it I
3: didn't know that was an option
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you gotta have one DNF per episode you're allowed that's Munson's law but 1986, he played Nietzsche in Wanfried, which I think is important note because if you're a philosophy nerd like myself, then you know Friedrich Nietzsche is one of the biggest names in philosophy ever. And so that's big. Like if you're going to play Nietzsche, even though it's probably a German TV movie, still we've covered folks who have been in TV movies like Brian Cranston and all the way who played lbj and was incredible in it actually i think the whole film is available on youtube if someone's listening and wants to check it out but it is not in the english language so
3: enjoy have a great time i don't know what nietzsche even looks like <sighs> not good Christoph Waltz. You <laughs> looks like christoph Waltz. <laughs> <laughs> kind of looks like teddy roosevelt it's kind of an odd looking dude I'm saying teddy roosevelt's odd looking yeah i would say it feels feels accurate
0: i think it's it's fair to say teddy roosevelt was an odd looking man yeah i think that's i think that's fair <laughs>
1: feel pretty good about that take. (laughs) Quicker Than the Eye, he played a police chief. It's like a weird magic movie. I didn't watch it. I didn't make time for it, but I was intrigued by the uh, poster of it. So if you get a moment to check it out, it's interesting. I think it's a really small role in there. If you're feeling like you want to torture yourself, maybe check out Quicker Than the Eye. He was in a miniseries in 1990 called The Gravy Train. Plays Hans Joachim. He is the lead in this. It's a four-episode miniseries, and it seemed like it was kind of a big deal there in 1990, you know, doing the lead role 13 years into his career, but still, obviously, has not hit the big time. We've covered actors that got big within, like, what, two or three years, and he's still
2: grinding it out and doing TV movies and stuff like that. Right after the gravy train in uh, 95, he was in the uh, TV movie Catherine the Great with Catherine Zeta-Jones, who played Catherine. A little on the nose, and That's a good time for me to announce that I'm going to be filming the video, Craig Christ, and I'll be playing the role of Craig Christ.
1: (laughs) Is that a Stephen Lynch reference right there?
2: Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) I love that. Fucking Craig.
3: Craig Christ. (laughs) I thought it was a biopic about Catherine Zeta-Jones, and she didn't realize that there was a historical figure. <laughs> it's a documentary. It's just a little
1: aggrandizing. She marketed it as a period piece, and they show up, and it's really just a camera following her. It's like reality television.
3: It's a, Yeah, this is that classic early 90s reality television. There we
1: go. Played a lead in Love Scenes from Planet Earth. Played Charlie in 1998. And then... Another one of the earlier American films I, could, I found him in is Ordinary Decent Criminal from 2000. He plays Peter alongside Kevin Spacey, Colin Farrell. I don't th- think he has a huge role in it, but again, I like to track some of these early like American roles that just didn't hit it big. And then the last one I'll mention here is 2003's Gunshy. So I just skipped in the past two minutes like 15 years because, and there's so many german or austrian titles in there we're not even going to waste our time trying to pronounce and explain but there's a lot and youtube is full of them so or reach out to us if you want the show notes we could send it to you because i pulled a lot of them he gets his big break and enters our homes and our hearts very quickly in 2009's inglorious bastards which is highest critic score Won the Oscar and James got lucky with the selections.
3: Fuck you, James. <laughs> I am so <laughs> happy
1: I get to review this. And
0: since I'm assuming we're going to talk about it for like the next 15 minutes, I will not go through a plot synopsis, but instead we'll talk about my favorite scene in this movie. First, Quentin Tarantino was considering abandoning this film altogether while casting because he could not find someone to play Hans Landa. Uh, and he was actually afraid that he'd written a character that was essentially unplayable. However, after Christoph Waltz auditioned, he knew he found the perfect actor for the role. And it becomes clear as day in the opening scene, which is my favorite. So the opening scene of this movie is is 20 minutes long. yeah, And it serves as an introduction to uh, Waltz's character, Hans Landa. And it's my favorite of any Tarantino movie. It's a masterclass of building suspense and using seemingly harmless dialogue between... Landa and a French farmer to increase kind of like the emotional significance of what's about to happen. It builds a depth to this character where you learn about this Nazi colonel and his brutal nickname, the Jew hunter and how Hitler's put him in charge of finding Jews hiding in the French countryside. But it also shows that he's over the top polite and intelligent and it's him by like continuously being cordial and ensuring that you know he's just merely there as a guest in the farmer's home that Walt's performance doesn't really let the audience breathe for like a second in those first 20 minutes because you know he's an evil man he has all the power in that situation he's flexing that power and he's doing it with like a charming smile he won his first academy award for best supporting actor for this role and it is well-deserved, and I believe it solidified Hans Land as one of like, the most sinister villains ever put on film. It is truly an impressive role.
1: Maybe one of the best acting performances we'll ever see in our lifetime, to be completely honest. It's that good. Yeah, I completely agree
3: with him on that, though.
0: It's the I'm a smart detective and I'm charming, but like you can see the deadness behind my eyes and I take pride in what I do. And what I do is a truly evil thing. Every scene that
1: he's in, he just sucks the air out of the room. That scene after she tells him that she broke, you know, broke her foot in a mountain climbing accident. His laugh is unbelievably good because, you know, he knows that it's all bullshit, and he is laughing directly in her face. She doesn't know that yet, but he like spit takes. He laughs so yep. hard, and he's like,
0: oh, "You broke your foot." and He like comes back and his questions like, "So this cast looks pretty new. What mountains
1: in France were you climbing?"
0: <laughs> and she just sits there and she's like, "Uh." He's like, oh, "I'm just fucking with you. Like, yeah, I'm just kidding."
1: That whole charade where he's getting them to introduce themselves when he 100 knows who they are, and he's asking them. To repronounce their name, what is it again? <laughs> Margarete. <laughs> what? So, one more time, Margarete.
4: Brad Pitt in that scene is amazing.
0: <laughs> Put some music
1: into it. He's like, say some
0: vibrato with
3: it, <laughs> and then he's like celebrating it with them at the like. That's I think for me, I agree absolutely agree again. Like I think probably the best villain, yeah. arguably ever, for me in cinema like it's it's thing. even when you think you figured his character out like he seems to do something differently that catches us as the viewer off guard and the and the protagonist off guard and he does it in such a sinister way that you you believe it so like you said you know that first opening scene like him switching to that sinisterness of knowing exactly where the hiding jews are is terrifying mm-hmm.
1: and he switches from english back to french
3: Yeah. And even how how at the time you're laughing, you're like, oh, this is just a convenient way for him to, you know, for these folks to start speaking English for me as the viewer. And then having that actually tie in again, like his laugh later on and the way that he, the the brutality of him strangling her. And then even his, his change in the end to end the war Mm -hmm. is just this like, oh my God, like I can't even figure out this guy ah, it's just, it's like gives me chills every time I watch that film, every, and it's like, I love it and I hate it. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: My takeaway this time from his performance in particular is how menacing he's able to make that character and how he does it yeah. relatively subtly. Like that, that, this guy's legitimately terrifying as much as I've seen Christoph Waltz act, I never pegged him as someone who would terrify me. He's able to bring this menacing nature out in this character in that opening scene, but even when he meets Shoshana at, and they have that like eating this, I don't even remember what it is. Oh, it's a strudel. In this Mm -hmm. just incredibly tense scene. And I'm thinking to myself, why is this like, I don't know why it's so tense like on the page, but it's so tense because he is terrifying.
2: Mm -hmm.
4: He's able to just elicit this menacing nature out of this person that is extraordinary
3: it really makes that whole movie special I'm so glad you brought it up like that's the one scene that still like fucks with me like i don't get it i don't know if he knew the the connection there but he's clearly relishing in that moment of like mm-hmm. something is causing this person discomfort yeah and i'm gonna twist those dials right and that scene again when he's like uh, uh the cream like it's just like <laughs> yeah he
2: doesn't let her eat it yeah Almost like he knows something, but he doesn't know exactly what he knows yet. Yeah. In an interview with Empire Magazine, Tarantino said that this was the favorite character he had ever written.
0: Yeah, I mean it's the first character he's written that's won an Academy Award.
1: Yerky and I talked about it off off line, but the idea that he told Tarantino told him to like calm it down, uh, auditions, and to basically like be really nice and get people accustomed to you being super pleasant, and then when we film this movie. You're going to turn it all the way up to 11 and it's going to create really, really tense moments that are genuine on screen.
0: That's for sure. It's a classic Tarantino where you get a one-liner that's funny in a scene that is tense and gruesome, but it is intentionally funny. Like when him mispronouncing bingo. Oh, that's a bingo. <laughs> and he's like, is that how you guys say it? He's like, no, in my country, we just say bingo. He goes, oh, bingo. How fun. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Be caught, martialed for this. Nah, I'll be chewed. I've been chewed out
3: before. I love that yeah. line, dude. <laughs> I love it's that It's one of my. <laughs> too. It's like you're gonna be killed for that. Like, nah, just be chewed out. I've been,
1: I've been chewed, chewed out before. before. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so where do you go from here after a conversation about inglorious bastards? Right, like you go from relatively unknown on the scene to potentially one of the best performances in the millennium. Right. So how to get it in there for you, case? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't plan it, but I almost missed it. I can sense it. there's something off with the universe. But coming out of that, you know, I guess Austrian was like, all right, you can have your citizenship. After that movie, uh, you've earned it. So he got his Austrian citizenship officially in 2010.
0: He spent his whole life in Austria and never had Austrian citizenship because his dad applied for him German citizenship. And someone asked him, like, you know, you've been on German movies and you've played Germans before and you're a German citizen. Do you consider yourself German? And he was like, not at all. He's like I was born in Austria, <laughs> raised in Austria, went to school in Austria. He's like Austria through and through. He's like the fact that I can't vote is like irrelevant to me. He's like I 100% consider myself Austrian. It comes across kind of like the way there's like certain states that have like rivalries with one another. Like he just takes like shots at Germans randomly in interviews. He was on Conan and he was asked what's the difference between uh, Austrian culture and German culture, and he's like, "Well, it's like asking what's the difference between uh, a battleship and uh, a and, waltz." And a
4: waltz.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. It's basically him being like, "You're fucking idiot for asking that question in the first place." Yeah. So I'm gonna give you the most absurd comparison in the world,
3: Aubrey. I'm here and look. If you just start taking shots at the U.S., you might get that German dual citizenship. Like mm-hmm. back in, you yeah. like maybe you start tweeting it's the game at Uncle in Germany and just like, hey, bring me back. I supported your football team.
1: <laughs> so coming off of *Inglorious Bastards*, where he plays this incredible baddie, his next big movie is The Green Hornet, where he plays, shockingly, a bad guy. He played Chinovsky.
4: This is considerably worse than the last one.
0: <laughs> considerably.
4: I wanted to watch this one for the Cameron Diaz episode. I think I was like, that's probably a good thing. Like, I'm probably going to dodge that bullet. So I came back to it this time. This movie is terrible.
2: That's the one with Seth Rogen? Yeah. 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 Okay.
4: It's bad in about every possible way. I don't like what Christoph Waltz is doing in this movie. It's like a really big cartoonish kind of bad in a very unentertaining way. This movies I just, I'm going to forget about it. I think that's probably the best way. Also, James Franco's in this movie for like 20 seconds. (laughs)
2: It's a very odd scene. Aubrey, I don't mean to depress you, but this movie made $228 million in the box office.
4: Whoa! I saw that. I had no idea who went and watched this movie. What? Out of what they did to Cameron Diaz to this movie, after going through that podcast and her career and me gaining much respect for her, I was mad that this movie kind of sidelined her in a really odd way.
1: (laughs) You want to take her take points away and post because of this movie?
4: I want to give her more points because she
0: had to go through it.
1: <laughs> oh, I like it. Empathy for her plight. Yeah, That's good. she was hazed. <laughs> yeah, this was my first time ever seeing it, Aubrey, and I'm with you. I was not inspired by the film in any way. You said that way more diplomatic than I did. I need to try yeah, that. Yeah, you're welcome.
3: <laughs> I actually don't think this is like an affront to the talkies, as Case would call them. <laughs> you didn't mind it? Good fun? Stupid fun? you know, this is like the era when I don't know if again, comic book nerd green Hornet's comic book. This is like old school, like pulp, like we're talking the phantom, like Tarzan. I think it was like gold key comics back in the day. So this was like, I think everyone trying to cash in on these like old franchises that had like no real relevance. But like, I don't think that the green Hornet movie was near as racist as like any of its like predecessors like were. (laughs) <laughs> um it's just like but this was also the era when they were like let's make a green lantern movie with jack black and you're like i don't know that anybody's asking for that mm. so this ended up being like a thing where i think like they you know i think Cato was like by far the most competent person in the film and i liked that role reversal where again in the traditional green hornets like Cato was like again like a racist trope i've seen worse comic book movies from the 2010s <laughs> that's why we bring you on, Yorkie, so you can give a different
1: perspective. It's important. Thank you. All right. Well, Rigby was supposed to cover lowest critic score, which is the Three Musketeers. So maybe that's why he didn't come because he didn't. Yeah. He felt like I was forced to watch the Three Musketeers, and that's why I had to bail. I mean, he's really fortunate because the real lowest critic score was actually Tulip Fever, which we covered on the Alicia Vicander episode that I covered about the tulip craze. In the eight, what the like late 1800s or whatever it is, and it has truly earned its lowest critic score.
2: I was gonna watch it, but I only saw it was free, and nobody was paying me to watch it, so I didn't. <laughs> no one sent you a W two, so you're not interested in watching it. <laughs> <that? laughs>
4: movie is worse than the green hornet
1: totally it's pretty bad (laughs) i would much have
4: watched the green Hornet. agree three feels almost generous it's just a bizarre movie in probably every possible way i think it could be i feel like everyone is miscast like i don't know three musketeers lore so i could be off base here
1: it's so much wasted talent so much wasted talent that well that's a huge thing like there's a lot of really good people in how that. do you waste mads mickelson like they do
3: to me this felt a lot like the league of extraordinary gentlemen i don't know if you've seen that movie but it's like it's like the cast is killer there's a lot of cool ideas there and they just don't nail anything anything
1: yeah Mila jovovich is in this she's usually fun not particularly fond of her character in this movie James Corden is in this. I'm anti-James Corden. But I like Luke Evans. I really like Luke Evans. Not great in this either. And Christoph Waltz plays some kind of advisor. He's a cardinal, right? Yeah. Something like that. I mean he's not the reason. I hate this movie. I mean he's fine. I kind of
4: liked the version of what he was doing because it was relatively subtle and that's the kind of I prefer his performances that are more understated. But there's a lot of people I like in this movie. Logan Lerman's in this movie. I really like Logan Lerman.
1: Orlando Bloom, Till Schweiger. Speaking of Inglorious Bastards.
4: Oh, my God. Juno Temple. I love Juno Temple.
0: I don't want you guys to just throw Orlando Bloom in there, dogpile the movie, be like, and we wasted
1: Orlando Bloom. No, I don't like Orlando Bloom. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very careful with my words not to include him (laughs) on the original part of my statement. Fair enough. Yep.
4: No, he wasn't wasted. I think he was doing exactly <laughs> what he was paid to do.
1: Yeah. He nailed his part, is what you're saying? Yeah, he was, I think he thought he was still on the set for Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm pretty confident in that, based on what I saw. So, just with a bigger mustache.
2: You glanced over this. Christoph Waltz played Cardinal Richelieu, And as everybody knows, he's credited as the person that invented the table knife. A very important historical character, Cardinal Richelieu is. You definitely didn't make that up. That's a real fact, isn't it? It is a real fact.
0: I wish <laughs> I was able to just claim credit for something that clearly was invented before I made it up. <laughs>
1: where
0: it's like, like, oh well, everyone knows I invented the shovel. It's like, no, you fucking didn't. Like,
1: <laughs> stop it,
2: bro. Yeah. I mean, whatever. Everybody knows that Cardinal no, Rick Rickaloo or whatever his name is. Everybody knows that. I'm I, just I, I'm overstating the obvious. It sounds like he,
1: was, he was playing a, a well-known, influential historical figure. That's what I'm hearing. He was. I find That's 100% that right.
4: In okay. fact, more interesting than that entire movie. Yeah.
0: Form- <laughs> <laughs> It'd be funny if they try to shoehorn that into the performance. <laughs> like he's <you're> just <laughs> randomly dropping. <laughs> bits about, like, if only we could cut things easier, you know? I'd respect <laughs> it. I would respect know what was that. in
4: that movie? Him doing, like,
3: sword fighting. Oh, really? There wasn't a lot of that? That was, that was Badly. I wish that. Badly. He was- he comes back from his training in Sword and Fire, and he's like, I've been, I've been waiting to really put these <laughs> sword fighting skills to,
1: to use. Maybe that's what fucked up his pelvis in time for Django a year later. That's, that really did him in, all of that, all that sword fighting. No one will ever know. 2011, he did a film called Carnage, played Alan. One that seemed pretty high on his IMDb. It wasn't streaming free anywhere, so I didn't pay for it. But has anybody seen this movie with Kate Winslet, with some other good actors? I saw this one.
3: No, I'm pretty sure this is the one with uh, Venom uh, with Tom and Tom Hardy. Yeah, <laughs> and Kyle and I are the only two people on Earth who thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: thought it was hilarious. I mean, it's John C. Riley, Christoph vault Jodie Foster, and Kate Winslet. That's a That's an interesting cast.
4: This is one of the first ones I watched because of the cast.
1: Yeah, it's got good ratings. Solid.
4: I'd say it's it's an interesting idea. Basically, these parents, it's two separate parents together because their kids got in a fight and one of them got injured really badly in the fight. So they're trying to, like, resolve the situation. And basically, the whole movie takes place for, like, one meeting and it devolves into them, like, essentially acting like kids themselves. So it starts in this really, like, kind of cordial place and devolves into, like, really petty disagreements and arguments. It's Some bizarre stuff happens when you set a movie all in one place, maintain these people staying there for an hour of screen time. This movie kind of has some of that. Christoph Waltz is (laughs) on the phone most of the time in this movie. He doesn't do a whole lot. He's got one, like, pretty solid kind of monologue type situation. It's okay it's okay. It's a good idea. It's enjoyable because of the performances, but it doesn't really amount to much of anything.
1: Would you would you say he phoned it in? Oh God, yeah. I love that. I would not say that. <laughs> I had to. I had to. A line of events so far. I love it. Low hanging fruit. I'd refuse to say that. <laughs> I had to. Yeah, James doesn't want to endorse me being funny because he can't deal with not being the funniest guy here. So, so I'm sure that's what it is.
0: It's not that. It's I refuse to reward this behavior, Kyle. That's true. <laughs>
1: I promote Just it. my corny ass behavior. Yerky's clearly the funniest person here. So just so we're all on the same. Yes. Thing. And
3: I don't baby. see him laughing is what I'm saying. <laughs> he doesn't like laughing. He's told us as much. I told you before. I don't fucking like comedies. Don't put
1: me in a corner. No one puts baby in a corner. Okay. All right. Let's talk about the other Oscar winning role. and Chain plays Dr. Schultz. Got the Oscar, BAFTA, and Golden Globe victories. What do we think? What do we like about Dr. King Schultz?
3: I like that he went from being one of like the most racist people to being like the least racist person. <laughs> yeah,
1: range, and not a bad guy here. And and there's some subtle. There's a lot of subtlety to his role, but definitely a different kind of role.
4: This is what I think about when I think of him. Like as as like a charismatic performance. I think of this one. A lot of charm, a lot of charisma. Like yeah. It's he's so entertaining. I think about this one a lot because I attach myself, like I attach him to that that charismatic quality. So I think about this performance a lot in reference to him.
0: This role was specifically written for him and he was initially turning it down because it was specifically written for him. He's like, I kind of want to earn this. He's like, it it feels like too hokey, too much about me. And then he said he would only agree to it if there was no like sub- sinister plot. If we're going to do it, I want him to be a pure character. He's like, I want him to be a good person through and through. And even then, he's a good person who's a bounty hunter who kills people.
1: A little bit of a gray area there. The one thing that I, uh, that gives me a little bit of pause, and if you watch both of his Oscar acceptance speeches, he does the same thing twice. Now, I know it's before a lot of things came out, but it makes me wonder and that's he spends a lot of his speeches thanking Harvey Weinstein. And we, I know we talked a lot about Harvey Weinstein lately, and I know Weinstein has produced a lot of Tarantino films, but he like goes out of his way to talk about. And obviously, looking back, it's, it's easy to criticize that, but he's like overtly complimentary of Harvey Weinstein. There is a chance you could give someone a
0: benefit of the doubt where he's just sucking up to a production major head of a production company and being like, hey... Please keep casting me in roles. And then you find out he's a dipshit and you're like, oh,
1: well, fuck. Not to kill the momentum, but that's one thing I noticed from his his speeches. It was a
2: consistent theme. Instant impressed. do you listen to speeches? I don't, I hardly watch them fucking shows, let alone listen to the people talk. (laughs) Those speeches are two and a half minutes long, baby. That's easy, easy to consume. Three minutes longer than I'm willing to listen.
3: I think that I prefer
2: Django to Inglorious Bastards, like as a as a movie. Oh man, welcome welcome to the squad. That's exactly right. Welcome to the team. And I
3: think for me, like part of it does come down to Vault's character. So I think the difference for me is that in Inglorious Bastards, I think that he like absolutely commands every space that he's in. And I think in, in Django, I think he does such a wonderful job, like setting up the the folks that he shares screen time with to really have those like incredible moments on their own right and so like again again delivers an amazing villain way in a follow-up i you know i didn't expect from having i think one of the best villains of all time in glorious bastards and i really i do attribute that to vault's performances and i think that was just an interesting contrast where like we like we said we know tarantino positioned him to dominate people in *Inglorious Bastards*, I think intentionally, and in Django, I think he does nothing but like that up and empower like folks that he shares the screen with, and I think that that's 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 a different side than what I saw in *Inglorious Bastards*. I
1: love that. Sense. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's a
4: great point. Well, I was with you when you were saying *Inglorious Bastards* was a better movie, then you made me choose between seeing slave owners die and Nazis die, so now I feel like I have to choose slave owners.
1: I know. So it's like so now. <laughs> kind of painted me into a corner there. They're both really good. Aubrey, if you had to pick one of the two, where you we know where Case and James sit.
4: I'm edging in Glorious Bastards. I think it's a better movie, slightly. Right. Django's a little bit more fun. Um, mainly because of what I think Christoph Waltz is doing. I'm so blown away by that movie as like a film, as a story, as a piece of like, like just the way that it's put together, I think it's it's masterful.
1: So he steps into the director's chair in twenty thirteen. He and back into the opera side, he's uh De Rosen Cavalier in Antwerp. He directed an opera. Going back, kind of combining his his film work and uh doing that, going back to his roots in the opera side. I think that's pretty cool. He voices a character in the movie Epic alongside our boy Chris O'Dowd, he plays Mandrake. Also in twenty thirteen, a movie that's like right at the top of his IMDB as well, alongside the two we just discussed is the zero theorem he plays Cohen. Sci fi film that it's very vibes, as Jay Ledbetter would say about films. It's it's very vibe It was my first time ever seeing it. It wasn't my favorite movie in the world, but I get why people would really like Theorem, especially if you like sci fi.
4: There's a group of people that really love that type of thing. I didn't it wasn't I didn't stop it because there was anything wrong with it. I just didn't have time to keep as one of those where I stopped it to go do something and didn't have time to get back to it. I was into it. It was interesting, but And he's the lead. Yeah, that's not a blind recommendation. Yeah.
1: It's very different. Very, very different than a lot of the stuff we had seen him do. So I give him credit there. He stepped into a completely new element. This is only one of four movies I have on my sheet that love money. Kinda of makes sense. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a bit out there and so I could see why yeah it wouldn't appeal to a mass audience. It's I get it. Makes sense. Um, 2014, he makes an appearance alongside folks like Danny Trejo, Stanley Tucci, Chloe Grace Moretz in Muppet Muppets Most Wanted. He plays himself and the hilarious part about it, if you've seen it, this his scene. He does the waltz with the, one of the one of the Muppets. So I appreciate that for the name recognition. I almost watched this movie. Are you are you a Muppet head? Me? Yeah. No, nah, I, I don't. I don't mind. The, I'm not a Muppet fan, like huge fan, nor am I a hater. I'm somewhere in the middle. Nice. Nice. Calm, easy right in the middle with the Muppets.
2: I think they're fun. That movie's fun. He loves the Muppets. Don't let him tell you that. Okay, don't downplay. <laughs> don't downplay. All of Kyle's Burner accounts are Jim Henson related, if that tells you anything. Me and, me and KD running all the Burner accounts on Twitter.
1: <laughs> I'm still waiting for a hate tweet from him for us shitting on Thunderstruck last episode. Still haven't seen that yet. So and we're He hasn't found us. He hasn't found us yet. I'm sad Rigby's not here because I know he loves horrible bosses too, but he played Bert. Another bad guy in this one.
4: This one was a good time.
1: It's a lot of fun. Like Chris Pine is so much fun in this movie. Mm-hmm. He's what you come for. He's so good.
4: I enjoyed my, my double feature of Horrible Bosses movies. Oh, yeah. I really did not think I was going to enjoy it.
2: <laughs> First one's phenomenal. I love the curveball that we get with Jennifer Aniston in those movies. Was not expecting that the first time I saw it. She's despicable. Yeah. And I love it.
1: <laughs> it's what makes it so great? She makes the comments in the in the second one. Aubrey does from the rewatch, where her and Bateman's character have sex in her dentist office, yeah, but he tells her that he's gay. And her line when she says he's weirdly he's weirdly like touchy about his butt. It's for a gay guy. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> so his character Bert is like the the. The dickhead dad of Chris Pine, who has no remorse, no empathy whatsoever, just doesn't want to lose money. I guess he plays that well, but he's kind of outshined by the crew. Motherfucker Jones, played by Jamie Foxx, and Chris Pine is unbelievable in this
3: movie. This is one of the only comedies on the whole filmography, so I skipped it. Holy shit. And he is not playing a comedic role in the
1: slightest bit. Either. (laughs) twenty fourteen he plays Walter and Big Eyes. I
0: was not aware that it was a true story. So when it played out like a traditional biopic, I was pretty caught off guard. This is gonna make a twist here, and then like, oh no, it's there's no twists. This is I should have done some research before watching this. This is clearly a real story that took place. <laughs> <laughs>
3: what did you think of it?
0: One, I didn't think her art was that great, but I get whatever, you know, art's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, I think it probably happens more often today. And Christoph Waltz plays essentially a good art salesman. And he meets Amy Adams, who has an obscure art where she makes a lot of pictures with big eyes. And she's playing Margaret Keene, who actually did this in real life. And he's able to sell her art. And they kind of work up this scheme where... She is making the art, but they're lying, and he is selling it and saying it's his, and he kind of puts her in that position against her will. He plays off of his, I'm charming and caring, but also a little pushy and a little over the top really well. And then when he gets to like where shit hits the fan, and they split up, and she wants her money, and he's refusing to budge, the fact that the story played out like that in real life I thought was ridiculous, because it, it is... Like watching a nasty divorce, but through the court system. So to the point where the judge is like, well, let's see who's the real artist and we'll have a paint off. And I was like, Oh my God, this really happened. Like this is absurd. Uh, And I guess it lost me a little there, even though that
3: is what happened in the story. This is to me was like one of the first times that he was like, like just smarmy instead of like, I think like being that charming, but kind of like enjoyable to watch. Mm -hmm. You know, he was like just, you know, pretty much the whole movie was just kind of this to me, at least was this like this guy stuck (laughs) because I I saw this in theaters actually just being like, oh, man, just Christoph Waltz is crushing it ever since I saw Green Hornet. Yeah, this one is kind of the first movie I thought for me where it was like not a joy to watch him.
4: I like this movie quite a bit. I've seen it a handful of times. It might be a Tim Burton thing like Tim Burton. I think Amy Adams is incredible in this movie and what she has to like. Kind of do. It's like a full arc, where sometimes these movies kind of drop the ball on that. Like we get to see how she got to where she was, how Christoph Waltz could take advantage of her, it all made sense, and then her coming out of it was in a place that was satisfying. I thought he had to do a couple of different things. He had to be charming. He had to be kind of like obviously gross towards the end. Thought he did both well. I just kind of like this movie.
1: He made his appearance in the 007 James Bond world. In Spectre played Oberhauser in 2015.
0: I have uh some thoughts on Spectre and it's I'm I just don't appreciate how this movie tries to tie the other 3 Bond movies all together when it clearly wasn't planned that way when they were making those movies. It just felt like the movie overall, I don't, you know, like there it, it's some pretty shots, I think there's some well-acted scenes, some cool action scenes, but like as a fan of the James Bond movies, I felt like it was like cheap cheating. They like tried to do like a, a Marvel universe of James Bond. And that clearly wasn't the plan. And it's like the one franchise character where like, you don't need to personalize his story at all. It's, it's his job. It's like, you, you don't got to do a background. It's just like, Hey, he's got a bunch of cool gadgets and cars and, it's hot chicks, and he's wearing a suit, and he's gonna go beat up some bad guys. And They're like, Well, but his, he was adopted, and oh, you know, he was the favorite son. It's like, No, you don't gotta do all that shit. And I do like Daniel Craig as James Bond, I and I and I love, I love Casino Royale, Quantum Solace, Stunk, Skyfall was pretty good. And this one, I was just more upset about the actual story than like the pieces that made up the story.
1: What do we think of Kristoff back in his baddie bag here? I thought the, the how he was introduced
0: was very good, and then I I just couldn't get over the big twist reveal that was more fan service than anything. I don't know. It felt like the, I felt like it was wasted. I felt like it could he could have been great, and instead they kind of wrote him into not being his own character. It was more like. Hey, did you watch that movie in the '80s? Well, it's that guy, and you're like, "Oh, cool." If I didn't watch that, then this this means nothing to me, and you kind of just took away from this performance.
1: How does he rank if with the other Bond villains? I'm not a huge Bond fan, so I I don't I can't speak to that intelligently. I thought Madden Mad Mickelson.
0: Javier Bardem.
1: Bardem was one of them. I don't know which film. It yeah, might have been that one. Think that this one. where he has blonde hair, right? Whatever. Yeah, he has. I don't think the
0: acting is the issue. I think it's. We're going to make a billion dollars anyway. Who gives a shit? Yeah. And for some reason, they wanted to tie them all in together. And it just didn't make any sense when they were tied together.
1: Looked up an article from British GQ, the 10 greatest Bond villains. And uh, Christoph Waltz is not listed. <laughs> any of them. But I see Javier Bardem. I see Mads Mickelson, see Christopher Walken. Yeah. All the
2: others. Pretty much Sean Bean. Yeah, it's just improperly written. Collider ranks christoph waltz's ernest blofeld fifth of the daniel craig villain oh so that's not good that's pretty low down that'd be glass correct Got it. I that's dead last <laughs>
0: okay. all right not
2: great not great bob he made the list
1: though none of us are on it well none of us have been in a movie so it's not an unfair comparison craig it's, a, it's not a bad point craig on the theme of maybe not that great potentially legend of tarzan 2016 what we're calling our largest audience gap aubrey drew this one before you go aubrey saved me from having to do my second movie about tarzan review in the last couple months because i did graystoke uh, a few episodes back
4: i will apologize to all the tarzan heads i'm not big on tarzan lore but this movie is set like he's like a normal acclimated human in london and he gets i guess kind of coerced going back to africa to look into what's going on there because some shady stuff is going on in africa beginning of the movie start, starts with Christoph Waltz. His character is searching in Africa for this, think it's a diamond. Runs into an enemy of Tarzan because Tarzan, I don't want to spoil it for you guys. I want you guys to go watch this movie. Kills his son, so he wants Tarzan back. Christoph Waltz is supposed to get Tarzan to bring him back. So Tarzan goes back with Jane, Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie gets captured. The rest of the movie is Tarzan trying to get Jane, not stop the bad things that are happening there. The bad things that are happening there is the slave trade. This movie is weird. It's weird because like your main character is Alexander Skarsgård as Tarzan, and he's playing it about as muted as possible. Your main character is... This is not the word I like to use in any kind of critical sense, but boring. (laughs) There's no real way to kind of get around it. I like Alexander Skarsgård a lot. And then this, I just there's nothing he's doing that's interesting. I think Margot Robbie is bad in this. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is kind of not what you expect when Margot Robbie's and stuff. But the movie's messy, there's a lot of things going on. Samuel L. Jackson is playing a character named George Washington who's trying to stop slavery in Africa, but he's sidelined, so Tarzan can do it saw is doing stuff it's overstuffed while at the same time not really being about anything which I feel like really bad blockbusters are it's just an odd visual I just stopped at one point in time and looked at my wife and I said I don't know if anyone thought about this but ultimately what we have is Tarzan a white guy from London now running around Africa stopping the slave trade
0: just not a good look. The well known demographic that really helps Africa
1: out. <laughs> yeah, the white English. It's myth. just not a good look. <laughs> a lot of white guild on display there. There's
4: literally <laughs> a scene where he runs away, black guy behind him. He's not fast enough to keep up. There's a bunch of freed African slaves cheering him on. It's just bizarre. Like, I'm not like offended by it, but it's an odd look. And you know, the movie's not terrible. Like it's, I didn't like hate my time.
1: A five at best, like a four or
4: five. It's just not very good. It's messy and odd.
1: Our boy Jimon is in this. He plays the, the arch rival right. of Tarzan in this. They have a fight scene at the end of the movie.
4: Everything that guy does is interesting.
1: Jimon. Absolutely. interesting. Absolutely.
4: Yeah. yeah. Love that dude. Mm-hmm. This movie could have been about him, and I would have been far more interested in it.
1: As as the only person I hear that I think saw this and Greystoke for the Andy McDowell episode, I, I will tell you I preferred Greystoke from 1984 over this one. I'm not sure I ever thought I would say that. But Greystoke is actually a pretty decent film. In Greystoke, they actually show a lot more of the origin story. This one, to Aubrey's point, they kind of jump straight to him
3: living in London. I just didn't know how many of the songs were written by Phil Collins.
2: And whether or not that impacted the overall.
1: Okay, I was going to ask, but how much money did this make? Yeah,
2: it was like 300 and some million. Yeah, 357 million against a
1: $180 million budget. It's a very pretty film. And just so everybody, we didn't talk about Christoph Waltz much here. He's the bad guy. I mean, we mentioned earlier, but he's the bad guy again. Shocker. (laughs) So is he pro-slavery in this? Is that what I'm getting at? He's pro-diamonds.
3: He's more apathetic towards the act. Yeah does really care. I feel like if you're apathetic towards slavery, <laughs> yeah, so,
0: yeah. I mean, you're right. It's more of a binary it, system. He yeah. really, he really <laughs> needs
1: the diamonds to pay the debts. He's the hired hands to go in and get the diamonds. Tulip Fever, lowest critic score. We mentioned it. It. We gave it a full deep deep dive on the Vicander episodes. So check it out. He plays the husband, the domineering husband in it. It's not a particularly bad role from his end, from what I remember. I did not rewatch it because I try to spend my time somewhat wisely. But no one gives a shit about the tulip trade uh, in the late 1800s. That's where we're at. It might actually have actually been 1700s. Now that I think about it, who would remember these things? Who gives a shit?
3: You know it's a pressing issue when it can give or take a 100
1: years. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I don't know. Tulips were big at some point in time, and we're supposed to care. Uh,
3: yeah.
1: Like, I don't know, like, women
3: voting is kind of a big deal, whatever decade, whatever century it happened in.
1: Case has her final review of the night, and that's Largest Critic App, which is Downsizing 2017, which is
2: a movie that is kind of controversial. Some people like it, and a lot of the other people really hate it. So I'm interested to hear Case. Uh, Downsizing is a 2017 sci-fi comedy-drama directed by Alexander Payne. Payne is known for movies such as Citizen Ruth, Election, About Schmidt, Sideways, The Descendants, and Nebraska. This film has a loaded cast and a ton of great camo appearances. Starring in this movie is Matt Damon, who's the lead. Christoph Waltz, who plays Dushan, his neighbor and eventual friend. Hung Chao, the love interest of Matt Damon towards the end of the movie. Which, by the way, she has a great monologue that made me laugh when I was going through this movie. Kristen Wiig plays Matt Damon's wife. And my boy Jason Sudeikis plays Damon's high school buddy. Who was one of the first people to get "quote unquote" downsized? That got him interested in it. Before I get into the plot, here are some of the notable cameos from this movie. James, your boy James Vanderbeek, yep. plays a pretentious anesthesiologist at the high school reunion. Neil Patrick Harris plays a sketchy salesman for the company called Leisureland. It's like the best city for the people that get downsized. Laura Dern plays uh, Neil Patrick Harris' wife during the sales pitch presentation. It's just cringy. Niecy Nash plays a closer salesperson for Leisureland, and it's hilarious her scene. See, uh, and then finally, Kyle, your girl, Margot Martindale. She plays a uh, a woman on a, who Matt Damon talks to on the shuttle bus, who encourages Damon and his wife that they're making a good decision. Anyway, here's the plot: Damon and Rig are a married couple struggling financially. And they decide that their money would go further and they could live a better life after being downsized. Downsizing is a solution created by a Norwegian scientist to help mankind deal with overpopulation and global warming. It's a procedure where they shrink humans down to around five inches tall and thereby limit their consumption and demands on global resources. The catch? It's irreversible. Damon and Wiggs' character go down to New Mexico, home of Leisureland, which is the nicest and fanciest community for small individuals. However, after being separated, Wig decides that she's not going to go through with it. So you've heard of people leaving people at the altar. Here, Kristen Wig leaves Matt Damon tiny. She goes back to Omaha. Damon's forced to get a divorce, and he basically loses all of his money in the divorce, dashing away all the fiscal benefits of going small or downsizing. The rest of the movie is essentially Damon wrestling with his decision to, to be small, or miniature, whatever you want to call it, Starting out his resentment at his wife, and then trying to move on with his life. In those subplots, we meet Waltz, who is, as I said earlier, an annoying upstairs neighbor who is a free-living party playboy, who between him and his, he and his brother make a ton of money selling Cuban cigars because they can take the same leaves that they're making Cuban cigars with and have they can sell them for a dollar. His character is very lovable, yet shady at the same time. However, one of the things I will say about uh, Boltz's character in this movie is that he provides an effective narrative in the story, and he's always challenging Matt Damon, and he's calling him pathetic, and he's telling him to get on with his life. He gave me, as the viewer, uh, permission to really stop feeling sorry for Matt Damon and go, yeah, man, let's go. Let's get on with things. Overall, I enjoyed the movie. I remember watching this movie initially when it came out on cable, and, and I remember it really slowing down once it got into the love interest part. And upon rewatch, that stood out again. But overall, I really did enjoy the movie. Some of the clever details about downsizing were really interesting. Like early on, it they politicize it right, and there, he gets into an argument with a guy at a bar who's claiming that anybody who gets downsized, their vote shouldn't count as much as a regular person's vote should count. And it's kind of it's ludicrous to think about it and talk like say it out loud but the way they present some of these arguments is is actually pretty compelling and and I enjoyed that. It's a pretty low critic score for a critic gap. I mean I'm probably more in line with the critics than the audience on this. I thought it did get slow but overall I thought some of the some of the creative nuances of this movie and you know Matt Damon's pretty good in it. I enjoyed it. I mean 47's probably right around to where I'd be. 23 is pretty bad for audience. Yeah.
1: I didn't realize it was that low.
2: Yeah, it's low. I think it's
0: that low because it is a very cool concept, and there's a lot of places they could have went with it.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I think it's interesting that this procedure is invented to save global warming, but it eventually just gets used by dictators to dominate those they rule over and the upper middle class to save money. I think that's a fascinating concept they could have worked with. But I think the first third of the movie, you get that. And then it kind of just turns into like a early 2000s, like rom-com. Yep. Yeah. I think people were kind of backlash against one. They could have gone so much further with that. And it could have been an interesting world to build out. And two, I think they really didn't like Hong Chow's character because they perceived it as like a racist stereotype. And if you don't know that the actress herself chose that accent, it does come across that way because the character is written very stereotypically, where it's a a woman of color nurturing it like a doofus white guy into, you know, bettering his ways. It's a story that's been told before. And then when you put the over-the-top accent there. Everyone was like, oh, cool. We're all like in agreement. We could dunk on this movie together. And I think that it kind of like snowballed into this thing where people thought it was also kind of morally right to say this movie fucking sucks. Because then when you look at the interview from the actress herself, she's like, I stand by the accent choice. Like, I wasn't doing that to obviously like make myself a caricature of a person. I was doing that because that's my
1: lived experience.
0: And it it kind of became a thing outside of the movie itself.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Feels like this movie is misunderstood because there's legitimately critics that gave it a hundred perfect scores on here. Wow. two of them from the Guardian and the Hollywood Reporter too. Not like sham publications either.
2: Was one of them named M. Damon and the other one named B. Affleck or A. Payne?
1: Oh, oh, fuck! You're right. My bad. Uh, that's interesting. Zan Brooks and Todd McCarthy both gave it hundred. Some people give ninety, eighty-five. So Todd McCarthy gave it a hundred. Todd McCarthy gave it a hundred. Captivating, funny, and possessed of a surprise-filled zigzag structure that makes it impossible to anticipate where it's headed. This is a deeply humane film that, like the best Hollywood classics, feels both entirely of its moment and timeless.
4: Hmm. It's Christoph Waltz who is doing something really interesting. It's as a performance for him. It's interesting and I like what he's doing. Also, his hustle, while wow, terrible,
2: is brilliant. Yeah. This would almost be a better like streaming series. Oh sure. You're probably right. Yeah. For
1: delve into the sci-fi element of it a little bit more than what we got.
4: My initial reaction was to hate this movie the first time I saw it. It's a
1: product of expectations, I think, for a lot of people, because it had a ton of hype mm-hmm. when people when this movie first started marketing itself.
0: For Waltz, I like that he plays like a slimy guy who's actually like not a bad dude. Like he's like Yeah. He's he's like a he's a decent friend. You know, it's like, oh, that's my friend. He kind of does like a kind of side hustle, but he was like a nicer person. And it was more so about like Matt Damon kind of being like Making all the wrong decisions,
1: as Matt Damon will do sometimes. Let's round this out. The last couple of years, join Mahershala and Alita Battle Angel, Doctor Ito, a film that the internet loves. And I, I like Alita Battle Angel. It's a fun movie. I love he plays, yeah, he's he plays a very important role in this movie. I love this movie. Yeah, I thought it was I cool. I reviewed this movie. I enjoyed it. Another bounty hunter type of role, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both he and Mahershala are fantastic. The internet is right this time. It's a good one. I'm
4: kind of disappointed with how this one played out because I want to see more of this world. I think it's a really <laughs> interesting concept. I think visuals are spectacular, and I think the movie is good. And it just seems like it seems like the world just didn't want this movie to work. <laughs> so people were just like, nah, we're not going to do it because she looks weird. Her eyes are big. I just remember being really frustrated when it came out. I'm like, this movie is a lot better than you guys are giving it credit for. Mm-hmm.
3: Absolutely. Like if you think her eyes are big, you should see big eyes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was received very, very well with that audience of the Alita battle angel fans. Yeah. The battle and, army, uh, the elite. army. Unfortunately, it, it wasn't received as well by non battle angel fans. And so it was, it was interesting. I
4: remember watching the box office on this one pretty close. Cause I was like wanting to see if it was going to get a sequel it made a decent amount of money. I just don't know if it made enough for them to justify diving more into the world.
1: Robert Rodriguez directed it, and James Cameron was one of the writers. I mean, that's that's big time. And he plays a like a a really nice, compassionate dad character in this, which I enjoyed. I think he's splendid.
3: But well, like your point there, Kyle, like like I think like nerds, and I'm I feel like I'm okay speaking on behalf of them. They're oftentimes I think like the most fickle fans, and so like in yeah, this movie I think was like pretty much universally like hailed as like a like a pretty solid depiction of like anime or like manga, right? And that's like. Had pretty like previously kind of been decided as like undoable or it would never work. So yep. the fact like fans had such a positive response to this, I think, was like to its credit, was like pretty phenomenal.
2: Yep, good point. I think it's a great point. It made 405 million in world gross. That's crazy. It made some, it made some cash. The budget is crazy though on this one 170 million. As I would say, it's near 200
1: expensive. That's a that's a tough bet. It's a lot of money, right? If you're gonna make a yeah, if you're gonna
3: make a sequel, like twice as much as the Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. It's important to
2: note this is his third highest grossing movie. That makes sense.
3: He also speaks
1: very highly
4: of it. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I listened to a podcast interview where he was like very he trashed superhero movies, which I thought was an odd choice.
3: It gives Rigby points right there. So speaking of superhero movies, who would be your ideal? christoph vault's casting if we're talking like mcu great question
1: It's a great question that's not a derail it's it's on topic who would be good i have
3: my ideas but
1: i
0: i would like to just you know use his what i think is his best skill which is being a bad guy coercive. and so yeah yeah i think we just you you put him on the bad guy side and then i
3: have to work my way down from there yeah I think you're on track. I think there's a specific. And if
1: he was more physically imposing, he would probably make a really good Doctor Doom, but mm-hmm. I don't think he has the stature
3: for that. I think it's I think it's Doctor Doom. I think you would get someone who's charming, who is who is regal. Yeah, I, I I think for me he's pretty up close up there to my like ideal Victor Von Doom. If you want an actual sinister
1: Victor Von Doom, uh, he's a damn good choice. You can do a lot worse. And Christoph Waltz.
3: Yeah, I like that. That would be fun.
1: Dark Phoenix, that's what I say.
3: There are times the charm, baby.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Might as well. The first two times didn't work, right? (laughs) Marvel's been known to change the origin stories of these heroes. You you never know. He returns to the director's chair in 2019, this time on the film side. So he directs and plays a character named Ulrich in 2019's Georgetown. He plays a, a gold digger who marries Vanessa Redgrave's old ass in the movie. And when she passes, then her daughter, played by Annette Benning and him, have a little bit of a showdown where she knows he's a piece of shit and he's chasing the money. But he also is more than chasing the money. He's really chasing, like, building his sketchy pyramid scheme business amongst, like, DC elites and so just when you kind of get settled into thinking he's a complete scumbag then the story pivots to show how she was helping him build his company and it was less about the money and more about him gaining influence so it was an interesting movie from that standpoint i will say for him as a director so thinking about direction
4: as a director i think this i think this is one of those where it's like good actor he's directing and he's Just not all coming together. No, he's directing almost to himself because his performance is really good. The movie is a mess. It's like, did he like? He stopped the Iraqi war. Like, what did like? What? Yeah. What is that about? Like, there's a
1: lot of good people in this. (laughs) I think he intends it to be. That's part of the chaos of his character and how much of a pathological liar. It's like the all the random origin stories related
4: to it. It's not bad. It's interesting. As a director, it's interesting. He's good.
1: Yeah, if you're interested in his background, I think it's worth checking out to see him do some directing on screen. He hadn't really done TV in a long time, but he did 15 episodes of Most Dangerous Game in 2020, played Miles Sellers. I watched that. The whole thing.
4: Those 15 episodes, it's really a two-hour movie. Oh, really? So I just watched the movie. It was just on Amazon as a movie. And I didn't even know it was a series until I looked it up on IMDb. And it was like their eight-minute episode.
1: <laughs> it was always Quibi, wasn't it?
4: I think that's what it was. This was my first experience with Quibi.
1: Yeah, I think it was Quibi. That makes sense. I knew he had something in Quibi. I didn't
4: hate this, even though I hate Liam Hemsworth. I don't like him. And I actually enjoyed this. This was like a good time. It's fairly predictable. But it's a good time. He's just running around Detroit trying not to get killed by these random people that paid a lot of money to try to kill him. And Christoph Waltz is organizing all of it. Another bad guy. Kind of like a slick talking like, you know, I'm not really doing anything bad, but I'm a terrible person
3: type villain. Have any of you read The Most Dangerous Game short story? That was like one of my first formative times in school where I like didn't do the reading. And it w- and was like listening to everyone else in the classroom. Like, <laughs> And when I right? I think we've been all been there.
0: Wait, I was, I ab- and I'm, a, I'm about to do it right now. Yeah. The most dangerous game is the one where they hunt the, the guys for fun. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. They hunt people. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So yeah. I, I was doing what you did in your formative years just now.
3: Yes. Uh-huh. Very on brand. Cool. But this was the first one where I'm like, holy shit, like, I need to read this. Like, This sounds dope. So I like, frantically went back and read it. Yeah, it's pretty good. So yeah, I had no idea the show even existed.
1: It's because it was on Quibi, and Quibi died mm. almost immediately. So I think that's why. Yeah.
4: Amazon has it as a, just a straight two hour. It's like an hour and 50 minute, two hour movie.
1: Oh, makes sense. So really, he has not done TV. It's just another movie, <laughs> ultimately.
2: All of these suck compared to the uh, Ice-T vehicle surviving the game based on that short story from 1994, boys. 1994. Throwing it back. Look at you. I was in first grade, living my best life. Confident that that
4: wasn't good.
1: <laughs> We're not even going to give him the opportunity to explain what he thinks that was. <laughs> so 2020, he's in Rifkin's Festival, plays the character Death, so he's in one scene in that movie with uh, Wallace Shawn, but a Woody Allen film. And then on top of the And like after Woody Allen, you know, all the everything came out and people started canceling his movies and all those things. So it just aids my Weinstein thing. I like put those two in tandem. Like, why are you doing a Woody Allen film? Well, after along with all these other people that are like Gina Gershon and people like that, that aren't getting roles in big movies. So I'm, I'm just a little skeptical.
4: The Carnage is a Roman Polanski movie.
1: All right. You're just helping out my cause here. I'm just saying there might be something to it. I'm a little worried about what he does in his personal life. I'm just saying, Just not saying him, but I'm saying returns back to the screen in no time to die alongside Rami Malek. So you see that character return again, you know, like a the tip, the trope of go back to the, the old villain and get them to help you track down the new one. Not too dissimilar from Horrible Bosses 2 when they go to Kevin Spacey's character to help them try to track down (laughs)
2: Christoph Waltz's character. This is the only time in history a Bond movie was uh, likened to Horrible Bosses franchise. (laughs) Apparently, he
1: makes an appearance in the French Dispatch last year with Angelica Houston.
4: It's the Timothy Chalamet story. Okay. He's in it super briefly. He comes over for dinner.
1: Okay. He barely talks. I really like the French Dispatch. It's an awesome movie.
4: Big fan of it. Yeah, I really enjoyed that.
1: And then two other crossovers recently, too. He did A Stage, which was an online show during COVID with Michael Sheen. Love Michael Sheen and that show with him and David Tennant. It has few really good reviews. And then he did a movie with Willem Dafoe called Dead for a Dollar here in 2022.
2: Wild movie. I would imagine so with those two in it. Willem Dafoe
1: is going for it. Yeah. Because
4: he's a fucking hero. It's yeah, great. Everything he does is great. He's in a completely different movie though. They are not in the same. Movie. <laughs> it's a completely different movie. His movie's <laughs> better. Okay, well,
1: that's good enough. He's just running
4: around playing poker and shooting people. And Christoph Waltz is more understated. He gets tied with the Rachel Brosnahan character. And Rachel Brosnahan, I love it, Mrs. Maisel. Mm-hmm. Is one of the worst performances I've ever seen.
1: Oh, it's shockingly bad worse than tommy wiseau in the room or where are we at and like what, are, what kind of what are we talking about here better than that <laughs> that's, uh, well, that's good that's important that. we get set a better than that very important she gives a monologue that's just okay. shockingly bad james is gonna tackle top performances because rigby's not here and let's see what rigby dug up that james is gonna read off to us
0: far out magazine but it is christoph waltz top and best film performances. And when did it come out? They're very new movies in here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Glorious Bastards. *Django*. Heck of a guess on those two. Yep. Both of them are there. Hey, you know, taking some risks. They're actually number one and number two oh. uh, in order. Oh, there we go. I agree
1: wholeheartedly. Check it out. No time to die on there. It is not. All right. Well, see, there you go. To you guys' point. How about Zero Theorem? Does it make it? That is number five. Okay. Big eyes. Number three. Got it. Be- Oh, number three. Maybe Alita. Number eight? Yes. Made the list. How about Fire and Sword?
0: <laughs> Fire and Sword does not make the list. They didn't watch it, that's why.
1: How about Tristan and Isolde? <laughs> you know, maybe they got different names. Neither, neither interpretation <laughs> of that movie no. is <laughs> Not the name of the movie. All right, how about uh, the Catherine Zeta-Jones biopic? Catherine the Great? Yeah. No, it does not make the movie. Oh, the way you <laughs> said that. I was like, oh, shit.
0: Downsizing?
1: Uh, downsizing is not on the list. Grady Train. Throw it in there. Nope. I mean, we're. I think we're like tap dancing around some good ones probably here. I don't think you are. Carnage. Carnage is number six. Here
0: we are. The Green Hornet. Green Hornet. Green,
1: Hor- Green, Hornet. Green Hornet. Number 10. I told you. It's pretty good. Tell me Three Musketeers is on there. Three Musketeers. Number nine. All right, so what do we miss? We miss like one. Okay, this list needs to go.
0: You're missing number seven and number four. Should have been a top seven.
1: <laughs> We're missing number four. Yeah. Is it horrible bosses too? No. Oh my god.
0: Did we talk about number? F- Did we talk about number four? Hold on. I
1: don't. I don't. Know. You tell us. This is usually where we miss one, at least one, and Rigby tells us, "Hey, we didn't talk about this one," which is good. It checks. It keeps us humble. Keeps us humble.
3: We'll say the advanced, like the advanced reviews of Pinocchio have it being his highest <laughs> rated movie.
1: Yes, it does. Yeah. 94%. I, I don't think we talked about this movie. Okay, tell us. What is it? Water for Elephants. Wow. Oh, yeah, we didn't. I think it was 2010 that came up somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. Okay. We fucked up. We didn't watch it. He uh, plays
0: a bad ringleader. And then I just disagree with this, but number seven is Spectra. So, yeah, I, I also agree. I don't like this top 10.
1: <laughs> they got the first two right, so that's important. Yeah. It sounds, and you guys were very complimentary of big eyes. So. Everyone got the first two right. That's easy. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. I know when you are like number nine, I don't like it. I don't know what you replace with nine and ten. I think that's part of Christoph's challenge is that his, his top roles are very top-heavy. Mm-hmm. And then once you get past five or six, yeah, kind of like milk toast to me. It's not great. Yeah, be honest. And you'll see when we score, I'm not going to get too shiny from the two Oscar-winning roles because Rigby will. I'll just sneak preview. I have his score and his explanation, but for me, I'm I'm not going to get too distracted by it. All right, let's get into Munson Meter. What we do, we rate every actor on a scale of zero to hundred based on a variety of factors that could include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, their acting range. Ward's footprint, any other talents they might have. Personal life, comedic chops, box office success or lack thereof, and anything else that matters to us is Munson's.
2: And this time, we're going to start with Case. The point you just made about his roles being very top-heavy make this a difficult score to come up with. I don't know why, but I always like to compare Chris, uh, Christoph Valtz with uh, Walken and John Melkovich. While I think it's a great comparison, it doesn't help me on this podcast because we haven't reviewed those two, so... Uh, as someone who only knows him from his American film presence, I don't quite know him as a leading man, and that hurts him. Uh, I know him most from his roles like *Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, Bond films, movies and roles like that. And all of those, he's either set against or with a dominating lead character or characters. He does, however, still shine and command screen attention in most of the roles. Like we had talked about with *Inglorious Bastards, that might be some of the finest acting we'll ever see. One of the things that did surprise me is his name recognition isn't quite as high as I thought it was going to be, but his role recognition is very, very high. Two apt comparisons I can think of from our past episodes would be John Totoro and Willem Dafoe, who we just mentioned. I'm washing out his box numbers just because the first two-thirds of his career I couldn't find. With all that being said, I'm going to give both a score of 87.
1: So you got to respect his Oscars. Two for two is pretty darn impressive. And Hans is one of the best characters uh, like you'll ever see on screen. So props to that. And i give him credit. He hustled in the german and Austrian film TV scene to get to Hollywood. I mean, he worked at it. It was not given to him by any stretch. His associations with Harvey Weinstein, Woody Allen, uh, Roman Plansky, like those things that I can't ignore uh, because it's so repetitive and just the timing is just crappy. Again, there could be nothing nothing to it, but it just smells fishy from my end, and I'm allowed to as a Munson to get, smell these fishy smells and uh, associate it. But he is no doubt he's one of the best baddies you're gonna find on screen. Uh, and his range is a little limited because of that, because he's so good at that, he tends to take on roles or get cast in roles that do, do that, like to see him do a little bit more. And he's not terribly funny, but he has a, a dry humor that makes people feel uncomfortable and the crowd will like slowly come around to laughing to it so i i give him respect there so i'm going to give him a 78
3: aubrey
4: i'm enamored with the the top end of what he can do the same as everybody else i think seeing him maxed out in that way is just a joy to watch i personally just enjoy watching him cuz i find him really interesting charismatic it's just fun he seems to be fun in a lot of the stuff that he's doing and he brings a lot of fun to what he's doing. I don't want this to sound bad, but I kind of like him, liking him to a role player in a perfect situation. He's got everything right, he's excellent, top tier. When it's not all there, it just, it it doesn't come together and it made for some tough watches. It's hard to not get kind of caught up in some of those. You know, I'm always going to be gravitated to what he does. Um, so for that, the top end stuff, just kind of still being a bit of a mixed bag. I'm gonna go
3: 74. Yerky. Yeah, I, I, mean, I agree with a lot of what's being said. I think I feel like he's got the range, especially like in the roles we see him again in in you know in Django and in Glorious Bastards. Like again, those like terrifying to funny to I mean to charming, like even endearing. So. I feel like I, I got to give him more range on that front. And, and I think the thing that really sticks with me is like, here you have Tarantino, one of my favorite directors of all time, you know, was ultimately like almost didn't make a movie because he couldn't find like that, that actor to portray the character that he was envisioning. And so to have Tarantino, they like, this is, this is the only way that this story of mine can even take shape. Um, you know, other movies I think were real misses in a lot of ways, but I don't know that I would ever attribute them or that to Christoph Waltz himself. Again, I, I'm more of the mind. I think he is an incredible actor and and has given us some of the most iconic characters that we uh, have seen in our lifetimes and probably will see in our lifetime. So I'm, I'm going to go with an 86. 86. All
1: right, James. You guys have
0: covered all the points I would cover. The one point I would add is that I've always found his interviews very odd. He is very clearly of the artistic world where his method is private to him. And so if you want to see uncomfortable interviews, just Google any of his. Someone will ask him about Preparing for a role, and he'll essentially just dead the conversation. He's like, no, I'm not gonna tell you any of that. And the person will be like, Well, I have like six other questions about that. He's like, and I'm not gonna answer any of them. He's like, all right. Go back to your playbook. Yeah, it's just an, an odd way to interact with people. But I get it that sometimes great artists are a little quirky. That's fine. I can't really argue with the point you made up, Kyle. Like the point that you brought up that is an absolutely odd trend, smells a little too funny, but Those are like two of the greatest movies I've ever seen, and they wouldn't be as good as they are if it wasn't for him in Django and Inglorious Bastards, Um, and he deserved the Oscar for both of them, and I put a lot of weight into those rewards, so I'm going to give him a uh, 79.
1: And Rigby, although he wasn't here, he did send me a score. He said he gets an 85. For me, super talented, can play dark and sinister, just as good as comedic roles, one of my favorite actors so far that we've covered. His two Oscars get him big points from me, and I think his performance in Inglourious Bastards is my favorite role of anyone we've covered so far. 75 episodes is his favorite act and performance, which is very high praise. So with that, that gives Christoph Waltz an 81.5, which puts him in 18th place. Man, our list is getting crowded when you get an 81 and you're in 18th place. (laughs) Yeah, it is. That's pretty wild. And that puts him between Sam Rockwell and Mahershala, who are tied at 16th, and Allison Janney.
0: Ooh, a lot of of Oscar winners. He's just covered by Oscar winners over there. Murderer's row of them. Seems like a good spot.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Feels right. That's a bingo. (laughs) That's (laughs) a bingo.
1: We just say bingo.
3: That's what we just say. You just say bingo.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Aubrey, what has he got coming? Looks like a few things here. He's got quite a few.
4: Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which already started screening, but comes out in December. That one's coming, which is supposed to be a big deal, but I'm kind of torn. I'm a little pinocchio out myself, but it's also Guillermo del Toro, so I'm excited for what he does. Something called The Portable Door, which is a fantasy with Sam Neill. That's in post-production. Everything else he has right now is in production, a couple TV series, uh, The Consultant. Every note played, which is a drama with Angelina Jolie, uh, another series with Michael Douglas, and it's directed by James Foley, oh, so, guy who did Fear and two of the Fifty Shades movies, and then Billy Wilder and me, which, and then the in development is uh, Gilded Rage, which has nothing. Uh- Not even his name attached to it on IMDb. It's kind of like a wide array of things, which is interesting. There's fantasy, there's drama, there's TV series in there. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of different people in there, so it's a it's an interesting group like crop of films that he's got coming or projects.
0: Because of the Guillermo del Toro aspect of it, that's the only thing that's immediately not making me say like I'm never going to see this movie. Because if anyone can do Mm -hmm. kind of that fantasy vision of this and make it entertaining it's him but it's just like i feel like we're getting a pinocchio movie like every few years over here well, like.
1: more than one a year we got one earlier this year on disney plus <laughs> i'm
0: not so. even into pinocchio just in general and it's like yeah. we're getting them
2: the tom hanks five monthly you guys i've been burned out on pinocchio since the 80s <laughs> <laughs> welcome
1: to the team finally case was wishing upon a star when he was a kid and it never came true so since then he's really
3: been pissed off feels like Tarzan and Pinocchio are really slugging it out for franchises <laughs> no one gives a shit about. It. The viability tonight.
1: Okay, so next podcast is going to hit December 15th. The wheel selected one of these five. and Zoe Deschanel, June Squibb, Goldie Hawn, and Janine Garofalo. Loaded with women on this particular wheel. I don't know if I know who June Squibb is off the top of my head. She's an older woman. I don't know how old June is, but wow, she's June's a squid. Feel free to come
3: at Kyle Hickman. Yeah, right. He's at. He's at. He's at. Not Tim Burton on
0: Twitter, dude. She's ninety three. She's old. That is old
1: by every measurement of age. I was about to say she's pretty fucking old. Uh, she's fun though. She's really fun and blow the man down. That movie I talk about all the time. Palm Springs. She's in Nebraska. She's really good in Nebraska. Yeah, she's fun.
2: I kind of like the rest of that list though. I think it would be in for the rest of them. I'm nervous if we do Goldie Hawn. I'll just talk about Kurt Russell the whole time. So take <laughs> that for what that's worth. But if we get Chris Christofferson, I'm going to talk about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid at nauseum. And it gave us one of the greatest rock songs ever, "Knocking on Heaven's Door. So just okay. be ready for some truth bombs when that when, if that happens. Yeah,
1: We'd talk a lot about music.
2: Yeah, it'd be cool.
1: One of the few who's successfully transitioned from music into the world of acting. Has Janine Garofalo been in movies in like 20 years? It's been a while. Talk about what, Mystery Men, uh, Wet Hot American Summer. 90s. Is she in Wet Hot American Summer?
2: Oh, yeah. Sarah Silverman killed Janine Garofalo's movie career. (laughs) I don't think you're wrong on that. She's been doing a lot
1: lately, James. Just not a lot that you've probably heard of.
0: Yeah, dude. I looked it up. One of her movies made 21 grand. (laughs) Can't buy a uh, Nissan Rogue for
1: that amount. No, <laughs> used one maybe. Yeah, used. Nineties, two thousands though. We, there's some. There's some decent stuff in there we could watch and mm-hmm. talk about. I'm here
4: for the Goldie Hawn episode. I'm here for that.
1: Yeah, I would enjoy that as well. This is why I want it. Maybe it's the first time I've looked at her IMDb. Maybe it's not, but she only has 38 credits.
2: <laughs> Goldie Hawn? Goldie Hawn only has 38 credits. Did you know that? I did not, and most of them would be known.
1: Talk about packing a punch. I mean, yeah. Death, be- Death Becomes Her is a classic, yeah. obviously.
4: Don't forget about the two Christmas Chronicles movies. Yeah. Snatched. I,
1: I, I, so. <laughs> I yep. watched both of those. <laughs> first Wives Club, we've talked about that plenty. The Banger Sisters with uh, Susan Strandon is a lot of fun. Golly Han. I'd recommend that.
2: Golly Han's a shit. I would enjoy that episode.
1: 38 credits from 1967 to 2020. Fucking bananas. Wasn't she in Laughing? Yeah. Rowan and Martin's Laughing, 1968 to 1970. Yeah. 61 episodes. That's crazy. Who do we not? Zoe Deschanel. Oh, Zoe Deschanel. Deschanel. I mean, New Girl. Yeah. Phenomenal show.
0: I would just watch New Girl. That would be what I would watch. For the listeners at home, despite all the the very polite things Kyle has said about me. Unfortunately, the person who I most resemble in real life Nick. is Nick Miller. Oh, yeah. And yeah. to the point where I've had multiple strangers approach me and be like, Has anyone ever told? It's like, Yeah, many
1: people have told me. <laughs> I'm They're where? like,
0: From New I'm Girl? J- like, Yep, yep, I know. Exactly i Jake Johnson. What you're I get it. <laughs> Everyone tells me all the time. No,
1: so we did. I mean, what she's in, what, uh, the 500 Days of Summer, mm-hmm. which is fun movie. Mm hmm. Yes, man. is Isn't she in that Jim Carrey movie? Yes, she is in Yes, man.
0: Yep. Elf. She's in Elf. Christmas classic.
1: And Elf, Elf. Classic. I think close to Christmas time. It would be right on pace there. So, I don't know if she'd have a ton of range, but she's in some notariable stuff. Yorkie, if you had to pick one, who would you pick? Who's your go-to? The hell
3: of a choice. I, I mean, I don't know. Like you said, Goldie Han's like, career, I think is just probably too irresistible, but that's just me. All right, well, what, we
1: don't decide. I decide, and... Hey. I don't get a pick? What the fuck? I've never made that joke. in 75 episodes, so I drop it in there once. Mostly for Case. I'm glad I got James to laugh, though. I giggle. I appreciate that. It's one of the few times I got a genuine giggle out of you. <laughs> but the wheel decides, and we'll see what happens. Yerky. We always love having you, my friend. This is your chance, you know, to do a little plug. Wise words for the audience. It's kind of your your
3: floor, my friend. Boy, I don't know. I don't have any wise words right now. It's always great. Thanks for having me back. Always. No, what's shaking in the world today? I already voted. Do that. That's important. Go watch. movie. Don't watch Black Adam. That's my plug. Don't watch Black Adam. It's not worth your dollars. Let's not. Let's not perpetuate '90s bullshit comic movies that we don't need more of.
1: Oh, what's the movie you came here to plug? Watch yeah.
3: Bumblebee. If you like the if you like the Iron Giant, go watch Bumblebee. It's a great movie. There's a new Transformers on the horizon that's in theory a sequel to Bumblebee, but I'm not willing to put my name to it yet. But go watch Bumblebee.
1: With our girl, Haley Steinfeld. We appreciate you having your brother. Thanks for being there, man.
2: Hi, hey, dude. It was awesome, Yerky. Always a blast. That was fun.
1: All right, as usual, you can catch us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can catch us on the IG, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts? from Christoph Walt.
3: I make new enemies every day. It's called business. Thank you, gentlemen, for stopping by. Have a lovely day. Great right, skip the cake. Munson's out.
0: All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity.
4: Doctor,
3: shall we? Ooh. That's
2: a bingo. <laughs> Is that the way you say it? That's a bingo? You just say bingo.
3: Bingo! How fun! <laughs>